are going to get started even though we have stragglers and dawdlers. This afternoon we are really in for another treat um, with a precious woman of God, Emily Stimson Chapman. Emily is an award-winning Catholic writer based now in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. She's written books such as The Catholic Table, Finding Joy Where Food and Faith Meet, The American Catholic Almanac, The Patriots, Saints, Rogues, and Ordinary People Who Changed America, These Beautiful Bones and Everyday Theology for the Body, The Catholic Girl's Survival Guide for the Single Years. She's also a contributing editor to Franciscan Way Magazine. I've read that because our girls went to Franciscan. Her writings have also appeared in our Sunday Visitor, First Things, Touchtone, National Catholic Register, Lay Witness, Catholic Digest, and other places. Honored by both the Catholic Press Association and the Associated Church Press, Chapman writes about faith, hospitality, and food at her blog called The Catholic Table. It really is going to be just an effervescent presentation, I know, from a newly adopted mother of a precious little boy. I'm sure you've seen him right on her chest the entire morning, who's a little doll, so you'll have to visit him when you visit her table and buy some books. Would you please welcome Emily Stimson Chapman. All right. Can it, you guys hear me? Yeah. Okay, good. Uh, so I'm Emily, and as you probably gathered from the introduction, I write. Uh, I write a lot. Uh, I write my own books. I ghostwrite for other people. I write essays and news stories and blog posts. I write for religious orders. I write for Catholic institutions. I write a lot more than I should on Facebook and Instagram. Um, that's where I'm really, that's where you really want to read my writing these days, go to Instagram. Um, and uh, for the past two years, I have been writing for the amazing women's ministry in Dow, which is based right here in Denver. And that is why I'm here today. Last November, with the 50th anniversary of Humanae Vitae fast approaching, they realized that their old study on the encyclical didn't quite cut it anymore. Uh, Content-wise, it was great, like all of the studies they have, even the ones I didn't write. Um, but they realized it didn't address the emotional and spiritual struggles that women have when they're struggling to live out the church's teachings on marriage and love and sexuality. It also didn't connect with women where they were struggling, you know, where they were wounded, where they were, where they were really trying to overcome their own personal issues. Um, and so that's what they asked me to do. You know? They asked me to write a real, relevant, honest study that addressed the, the difficulties of living the church's teachings on married love, but also gave a lot of practical help for how to overcome those difficulties and embrace the fullness of married love. Uh, they gave me a lot of freedom to do that. They trusted me with a lot, uh, which was awesome. I'm not sure how wise it necessarily was on their part to give me so much freedom, but I appreciated it. And the organizers of today's conference gave me the same freedom. They said, write about, you know, writing the endow study on Humanae Vitae. 
And my first thought was, I spent four weeks in loungewear in my house while everyone else was going to Christmas parties working on that study. That's not going to be the most interesting talk in the world for you. Um, writing is not glamorous. Don't let anyone ever fool you. But I thought about it a little bit more, and I decided that the best way to give you a feel for the flavor of the study and what it tries to do is share my own story with you and the struggles that I had living out Humanae Vitae even while I was writing the study. Um, that is the story that shaped the study, and the lessons that I was learning really worked their way into the study. So my story and my husband's story is not a story most people associate with Humanae Vitae. You know, it's not the story of how we overcame our fears and accepted more children into our life than we thought we could handle. Our story is the story of how we carried the cross of infertility. You know, how we desperately longed for children and weren't able to conceive any. Um, if you are wondering what infertility has to do with Humanae Vitae, it has a lot to do with it, and we'll get there in a minute. Um, but first off, it's good to know that Chris and I are still relatively newly married. Uh, we will be married 28 months on November 1st. So we're still counting months, which means we're kind of still newlyweds. Um, but we got married a little bit later in life. Uh, Chris is over there with the baby. You can tell by his color of hair. And uh, if you get up close to me, you can see some, some laugh lines. So it took God a while to bring us together. Uh, and that made sort of the desire to have children all the more urgent. You know, my friends who got married at 22 had like 20 years to conceive. And I was like, all right, we got 22 months. We got to get going on this one. Um, all right, but I'm not like a lot of women in the culture. Okay, so my plan was never have a career, travel the world, then get married at 40 and start a family. Okay, that's what I did, <laughs> but it was never my plan. My plan, since I was a little girl, was go to college, get married, and have a family. A big family. Like, as long as I can remember, I always wanted to have five kids, or six kids, or seven kids, I would say, I want as many kids as God will send me. Thinking that number was gonna fall in some reasonable number, like between five and eight. You know, nine was maybe pushing the boundary of reasonable. Um, but as time went on, I discovered that my plan, which I thought was so good, it had a fatal flaw. You see, it required a husband, and no husband was coming along. So as the years went by, I started dropping the number of children I was thinking I might have. And that number, it went down and down and down and down. Until by the time I was 40 and got engaged to Chris, I was thinking, okay, we can probably have two kids. You know, maybe three if we have twins. Um, most of my friends were in their 40s and they were all still having kids. You know, some were having their first, some were having their ninth. So I figured with a lot of hard work, there would be no reason we couldn't have kids too. And I was super willing to put in that work. For those of you who like personality types, I am a choleric, ENTJ type, triple A planner and doer, all right? I love making lists and checking them twice, all right? I will check off items on a to-do list with the regularity that other people breathe. If you ever want to invade a small country, I am the woman you want standing by your side while you do that invasion, okay? And it's, that's how I approached my fertility. Like, we're gonna do this, we're gonna invade. <clears throat> so in late 2015, when Chris and I started talking seriously about marriage, so there's not a ring on my finger yet, but we're talking about marriage, 
I headed off to a NAPRO doctor to get a full hormonal workup and have ultrasounds and get everything checked out because I wanted to know where we stood. So if there were any problems, I could you know, hit the ground running and fix them. But everything looked great. NAPRO doctor gave me two thumbs up, said, you're not going to have any problem. Don't worry about it. So on July 1st, 2016, we got married. And I made sure we did all the things we needed to do to conceive. I mean, we did all the things you need to do to conceive. And then we did all the other things you need to do to conceive. So we took vitamins and supplements and hormones. Um, we had more tests done. I had an exploratory surgery. Um, I tried acupuncture. I made dietary changes. I had another surgery after things still weren't going on. And we're like, maybe there's something else they've missed. Um, and because we're Catholic, we did every possible devotion. So we had three dozen different saints we were praying to. We had relics all over the room. Uh, we visited shrines. We visited so many shrines. Um, let's see, I got prayed over in tongues. I got anointed. Um, I got blessed with John Paul II's stole. I was even drinking this like supposedly miraculous milk powder from the Holy Land. You know, <laughs> like if there was a devotion that was attached to fertility, I was doing it. You know, if there was a food attached to fertility, I was eating it. There was one point last summer I was standing in my kitchen eating this salad filled with like 54 different fertility superfoods. And I was like, why am I not spontaneously reproducing all by myself? Like, you know, I'm like thinking like a child should be popping forth from me, like Athena from the head of Zeus. And my napro doctors, and I had two of them, they weren't sure either. I mean, actually, they knew why I wasn't spontaneously reproducing. There was a clear answer for that. But, you know, as far as they could tell, I was the picture of fertility. So the only advice they had for me was keep trying. Uh, for those of you who have struggled with infertility, and because it's one in seven couples, I'm going to guess there's at least a few of you in this room, you know how hard and devastating those words can be. For those of you who don't, it can be hard to understand because infertility is, it's often called the silent cross. People don't like to talk about it because there's so much, there shouldn't be, but there, there's a shame attached to it. People feel like they're doing something wrong, something's wrong with them, and so they don't share what's going on. Me, Chris always says other people have skeletons in their closet, but all my stuff is on the front porch. Like, it's a yard sale every day in our house. So if something's going on inside of me, I'm willing to tell the whole world. So I will share with you what other people won't about the emotional struggles of infertility. Um, back when I was single, and remember I was single for a long time. So I knew, I saw those fertility years like going, going, going. And it was difficult for me, you know. I mourned the possibility that I might never be a mother. But once I was actually married and trying to conceive and it wasn't happening, I mourned the likelihood that I was never gonna bear Chris Chapman's children. So the grief went from being generic to specific. Like our love, my love for Chris, our love was never gonna become incarnate in a human person. You know, it was never going to take the shape of a little girl with red hair and blue eyes or a little boy with brown hair and green eyes. Um, likewise, during the single years, the pain of childness was like a dull ache. So sometimes it became acute when another birthday came and went without a baby or when I was at a baby shower and I was the only woman without a child, which I lived in Steubenville for 15 years, so that was like every week. Um, <laughs> no, I just started throwing the baby showers eventually because at least I had a job to do. Um, 
so it was like this general sadness in the background of my life. It was real, but just sort of a quiet sadness. Once I got married and we were trying and failing, the pain of infertility screamed in my face hourly. So it was there in the morning when I swallowed a vat of vitamins to keep my hormones in check. It was there at lunchtime when I was drinking fertility shakes and eating sardines because apparently they have super fertility powers. Um, it was there at night when I really, really wanted a martini, but I couldn't because someone on the internet said that they would screw with my adrenals. Um, Diet-wise, lots of different advice out there about fertility, but unfortunately everybody thinks martinis are bad for it. Um, and the pain was there at night when I would take more vitamins and more hormones and more fertility drugs and go to bed with my husband. During the months that Chris and I were actively trying to conceive, infertility was my constant companion. You know, I couldn't get away from it. It dictated my schedule. It dictated my diet. It dictated like the cosmetics and the household products I bought. Um, it dictated how I arranged my kitchen cupboards because all those supplements and fertility foods took up a lot of space. Um, worst of all, it dictated my moods. So there is always, you know, in a month, uh, a week or two or three where I lived in hope, you know, where the fertility signs were all there and where I thought, you know, maybe this is the month. Like maybe this is the month that the walnuts and the flaxseed oil worked, or maybe this is the month that I nagged the right saint and God listened to them for a change. Um, and during those days, I would start to relax. You know, I could see a pregnancy announcement on Facebook or see a beautiful woman on the street with her baby and not burst into tears. And I wasn't crying because I was sad about the pregnancy announcement or that baby. Like I was happy for the woman. I was always happy. I was mourning the pregnancy announcement that was never getting made. I was mourning the baby that was not in my arms. But eventually, on day 28, like clockwork, the bleeding would start and hope would die. Um, those days were the worst days. Like those were the days that all my single years of wanting a baby and one not coming never prepared me for. Like they didn't prepare me for this 28 day cycle of trying and hoping and failing again and again and again. They didn't prepare me for monthly mourning because when you're trying to get pregnant and you're not, every month that goes by feels like a death. And they didn't prepare me for throwing all of our hopes and all of our prayers and all of our efforts into the garbage can every few hours. That initial shock of sadness, however, would pass and it would become something else. Um, I don't know what it becomes for other people but I am a redhead with a temper problem. And so for me, it became a hot mess of flaming rage. Um, during these days, I was mad at God for not answering my prayers. I was mad at my husband for not marrying me sooner. I was mad at myself. I was mad at my uncooperative body and at my inability to manage stress. And I was mad at every single person on the planet who didn't appreciate what a mind-blowing, miraculous, beautiful gift it is to be able to conceive a child and carry them in your body. In short, like during those months, I was broken. I was as broken as I had ever been. Um, all my life, the one thing I had wanted was to be a mom. You know, people would ask me what I wanted to do, expecting my 4.0 GPA, Phi Beta Kappa, summa cum laude self to say lawyer or senator or, knowing me, dictator. 
and, <laughs> and I would just say, I want to be a mom. You know, I longed to carry a child in my body. I longed to feel little kicks inside of me. And I longed even more to form that child as they grew up, you know, to help them become someone who could love God and serve God and be who God made them to be. I knew God made me to be a mother. And although I could quote the church's teachings on spiritual motherhood to you backwards and forwards, it didn't feel like enough. Like, I wanted more. I believed I was made for more. And I was so furious at my body for not doing the thing a woman's body is supposed to do. Now, I tried to keep it in perspective. You know, I tried to accept the suffering and offer it up and carry my cross like a good Catholic girl. But most of the time, I felt like a failure. I felt like a failure as a wife, and I felt like a failure as a woman. It was taking everything in me to cling to Jesus and not let the cross of infertility completely crush me. And that is where I was last November when Endow called up and said, hey, we want you to write the study on Humanae Vitae. I will admit to you that I had to steal myself to say yes to that request. Um, like most people, I had fallen into the trap of thinking of Humanae Vitae as the anti-contraception encyclical. It had been years since I read it, seriously and closely, like probably in my 20s in grad school, when I still thought I'll have eight children, and I was reading it through the lens of someone who thinks she's going to have to manage her fertility that way. So with that memory in mind, I wasn't really in the mood to buck up fertile women about their fate in life. Um, I know that being very fertile can bring some serious crosses with it. I have watched my friends carry those crosses. I never doubted the reality of that cross for a minute. I just wasn't in the mood to deal with it. But I said yes, and I am so glad I did because I learned a lot during those four weeks when I was writing the study, starting with the fact that Humanae Vitae is not the anti-contraception encyclical, okay? It is the pro-living God's plan for marriage and love and sexuality encyclical. Like, that is its message. I also realized how much we are all in the same boat. You know, people with 10 kids and two kids and no kids at all. People whose childbearing years are long since past, and people who are still waiting for their married years to begin. God is calling all of us through that encyclical to say yes to the same five things. He is calling us to say yes to his plans. He is calling us to say yes to trust. He is calling us to say yes to virtue. He's calling us to say yes to hope. And he is calling us to say yes to the cross. Those five yeses, they're the heart of Humanae Vitae. Um, they're what challenged me the most as I wrote the study, and they are what changed me the most during those four weeks. So I'm going to spend the rest of our time here talking about those five yeses. Um, the first yes that Paul VI calls us to give in Humanae Vitae is a yes to God's plan for love and marriage. Uh, in the encyclical, the Pope describes marriage as having four characteristics. So it's fully human, it's an act of the free will, it is faithful, and it's fecund. So in short, God is calling us to say yes to loving our spouse freely and fully and faithfully and fruitfully. Another way you could say is that God is calling us to love our spouse in a way that images his love. 
You know, he's calling us to be an image of the life-giving communion within the Trinity and of the love that Christ has for his bride, the church. Now, when you lay out that vision for most young, faithful couples who are about to get married, or middle-aged couples who are about to get married, it sounds kind of awesome. Because who doesn't want to be an image of the Trinity, right? And you're like, oh, yeah, me, image of the Trinity. I'm on for that. For me, that was part of the problem. Um, Chris and I were hearing the church begging people to live God's plan for marriage and watching most people completely ignore that call. And I felt like the kid in the classroom who the teacher had asked someone to volunteer for an important job and nobody was volunteering except for me and I was just getting ignored. So I'm like, here going like, me God, me, I want to do it. I really want to do it, God. Pick me, pick me, pick me. And it was silence. So for me and Chris, saying yes to God's plan was fine. The problem, as it is for all of us, was in the details, because God's plan for love and marriage comes with some laws and limitations. Uh, no adultery, no divorce, no pornography, no contraception, no sterilization, no artificial reproductive technologies, no fornication, no selfishness, no secrecy, like the list of laws and limitations goes on and on. And for each of us, there's gonna come a point in marriage or before marriage where one of those laws and limitations is gonna collide head on with our free will. You know, God says no to something that we really, because we're fallen human beings, want him to say yes to. Um, you know, for me and Chris, the particular law that we ran up against was the no to artificial reproductive technologies. God was asking us to say yes to conceiving a child the way children are meant to be conceived. So no IVF, in vitro fertilization, no IUI, um, interuterine insemination, no surrogacy. Uh, for the most part, that was an easy yes or no, whichever way you want to put it, for us to give. But it was a lot easier for Chris than it was for me. Um, intellectually, Chris and I agreed that we wanted any child we conceived to be conceived in love. No, we didn't want to add one of our babies to the 800,000 frozen little lives that are scattered in storage facilities around the world. And we didn't want to give one dime to an industry that is perfectly fine with creating life one minute and then destroying it the next because it's not healthy enough or blonde enough or male enough or because it's more than enough, you know, because too many healthy embryos have been created. So intellectually, I was on board with that plan. But again, in my weakest and most desperate moments, I envied the women who didn't know better. You know, I envied the women who had not spent their entire adult life studying the church's teachings on marriage and family and could just use the excuse of ignorance and go have a baby through IVF. When you are desperate for a child, you will do almost anything to get that child. Just think about fairy tales for a minute. You know, how many fairy tales is that's what's going on? You know, a woman's climbing over walls into witches' gardens to eat magical radishes, or they're making deals with bad fairies or elves who are spinning straw into gold to get the baby. Those stories start to make a lot of sense when you're the woman who can't have the baby. Like, I can't promise you that if I ran into an elf who was spinning straw into gold and offered me a baby, I wouldn't make a deal with him because there is no church teaching against that, okay? Yeah, mm-hmm. They left that one out. <laughs> so I get the appeal of IVF. I really do, especially when you're told by your doctor that that's the only way you can have a baby. Or when you're told, like I was, that I was the perfect candidate for it. 
good eggs, good hormones, good uterus. You know, all we had to do was violate our conscience one little time with one little procedure, and chances are we would have that baby. And then we could go to confession and not worry about it, like cross of infertility would be gone. But I realized while I was writing the Humani Vitae study that it kind of works the same way for contraception. You know, all you have to do is take one little pill, insert one little device, um, have one little surgery, and you don't have to worry about the babies anymore. Same goes for divorce and adultery and fornication. Sometimes it's so much easier to just walk away from the marriage than to put the work into it or to give in to the advances of the really attractive coworker, or to sleep with the guy you've been dating who hasn't proposed and is thinking, maybe, you know, if I do this, he will propose. But Paul VI reminds us again and again in Humanae Vitae, it's never that simple. Uh, at one point he writes, unless we are willing that the responsibility of procreating life should be left to the arbitrary decision of men, we must accept that there are certain limits beyond which it is wrong to go. Elsewhere, he says, to experience the gift of married love while respecting the laws of conception is to acknowledge that one is not the master of the sources of life, but rather the minister of the design established by the creator. The minister of the design. So, you know, if you package it all up, we are not allowed to do evil so that good may come. You know, even if that good is a little baby. Uh, we don't get to treat anyone, even the tiniest among us, as products, because they're not. Everyone is a gift. Um, there's lines God has drawn that aren't meant to be crossed, because once you cross them, you can't cross back, which is why we have 800,000 frozen humans right now. Um, and God is the author of life, and he's calling us not to be scientists in, you know, science in a like, we're not to be in a scientific experiment or lab patients in a lab. We're called to be ministers in the sacred act of creation. So if you think about a priest, a priest on the altar doesn't get a willy-nilly change the liturgy of the Eucharist. He's the minister. He's just there to carry it out. Same goes for the creation of life. Like, when we are creating a life, we are involved in a sacred act. There's a reason they call the bed, you know, the altar. The, mar the marriage bed is the altar. So that thought as being a minister of a truly sacred liturgy, that more than anything else, that line is what resolved my difficulties about IVF. So that's the first yes Chris and I had to give, um, the yes we all have to give, the yes to God's plan for love and marriage. The second yes is a yes to God's wisdom and care. It is a yes to trust, to trusting when we feel God is calling us to have another baby to trusting when we find out another baby is coming that we were not planning on and that we did not think we could handle, to trusting when prudence dictates prolonged periods of abstinence, and to trusting when no baby comes along at all. And that, like way, way, way more than the IVF, is where I struggled. Remember, I had a plan. I had a good plan. And I did not understand why God wasn't going along with it. I mean, I was the, I, he's the one who made me a good planner. You know, it's all his gift that I could plan. And so I don't know why he made me such a good planner if he wasn't taking my suggestions. Like, it seemed really foolish on his part. Um, unfortunately, the answer that I was coming up with, uh, not, again, intellectually, but emotionally, was that I didn't deserve to be a mother. You know, that I wasn't good enough, that I was too selfish or too opinionated or had too much of a temper. You know, maybe God thought my German-Irish self was going to crush a little baby. Or other times I thought it was punishment for my sins. 
You know, it was God's justice. The things I had done wrong in the past had cost me the right to have a child. Not like having a child is a right, but that's what was going through my head. Um, those are the thoughts I would have on the nights when my period would start and I would lay in Chris's arms and I would sob until I couldn't breathe. It didn't matter how much theology I knew, in those moments I could not believe that God loved me. I could not believe that this was an expression of care for me. I could not believe that this was part of his perfect plan for my life. I did not trust in his goodness. I did not trust in his providence. I did not trust in his wisdom. I might have said I did, but the way I was acting showed I didn't. What it came down to, I eventually realized, is that I thought I knew what was best. And the fact that God wasn't agreeing with me wasn't a sign that I was wrong. You know, that my plans, my hopes, my expectations, my timelines, that something was off with them. Nope, it was that God did not love me. You know, he didn't care about me, he had forgotten me, and he was doing wrong by me. Working on the Humanae Vitae study helped me through that. Um, it reminded me that just as the mom with four kids under five has to trust when her NFP method is not working like she would like it to, or the couple whose husband's been given a cancer diagnosis and they have to abstain indefinitely while he goes through treatment has to trust, I had to trust too. I had to trust God's will for my family. I had to trust that he knew that eight kids or three kids or maybe no kids at all, maybe that's what was best for my salvation. I had to trust his will and I had to let go of my own. If I didn't, I finally realized, what was the point of giving my life to Christ? Like, I told him I wanted to die to myself and live for him. And what I had to come to terms with was that I didn't get to put limits on that gift. I didn't get to say, all right, Lord, I love you. I give you myself. You have my being. You have my heart. You have my soul. You have my mind. But my fertility, I'm going to keep. Okay? So here's how we're going to do things on my fertility. This, this, is, this one's in my realm of charge. I didn't get to do that. <laughs> like, that's not trust. Now, that doesn't mean I had to stop taking Femera to boost my ovulation any more than the mom with four kids under five needs to stop trying to find an NFP method that works better for her. Legitimate fertility interventions are as fine as natural family planning. But what it did mean is that I had to come to terms with that all of my efforts weren't necessarily going to like, yield the results I was looking for. I had to trust that even when it hurt, even when it didn't make sense, even when I was terrified and riddled with anxiety about never being a mother, that God was still loving me. God was still caring for me. God was still moving heaven and earth to bring about the very best for me. And that that best wasn't 10 babies or any babies at all. Or for other people, it wasn't more sex or lots of sex or more freedom or more time to pursue a career or whatever it might be. Like, the best for me is God. The best for all of us is God. You know, that's what all of his efforts in our life are ordered to. Not our temporal happiness, but our eternal happiness. And his laws are ordered to that too. You know, God doesn't make arbitrary laws just to torture us. He knows us. He knows what is going to ultimately make us happy. And those laws are the path to happiness. It may not feel that right, right away. You know, it certainly didn't feel that way during all the months we were struggling. You know, but eventually, in eternity, it will definitely feel that way. And eternity is a long, long time. So if you have to pick a long, long time of happiness over 80 years of happiness, go with the eternity one all the time. So 
Grace is ultimately how we make that choice to choose eternity, but God also expects something from us. You know, he expects good works. He expects right behavior. He expects good choices. And to make those good choices comes that other yes. That's the yes to virtue. Um, virtue basically means good habits, and there's two broad types. There's the human or the natural virtues, which we acquire through hard work, and there's the supernatural virtues that God imparts to us primarily through the sacraments. Here I'm talking about the human virtues, particularly the cardinal virtues. Prudence, which is knowing the good. Justice, which is doing the good. Fortitude, doing the good even when it's hard. And temperance, being able to balance all competing goods to achieve the greatest good. In Humana Vitae, Paul VI calls married couples again and again and again to grow in virtue. Okay, nobody, like Christian or not, can be married happily without exercising the virtues. And nobody, Catholic or not, can live the church's teachings on marriage and family without making some serious work to grow in prudence and justice and fortitude and temperance. If you don't have the virtue of prudence, you can't discern what's ultimately best for you and your spouse. You can't see what's good for their soul. You can't see what's good for your family. Without justice, you can't do the good. You can't abstain when you need to abstain or welcome the child when you need to welcome the child or say no to the artificial reproductive technology. Without fortitude, you can't do those good things when it's really hard. You know, you can't abstain when the person you're most attracted to in the entire world is right there in bed next to you. Um, you can't welcome the child when you really think another child is going to break your sanity. You can't say no to IVF when you are desperate for a child and you know that is the only chance you have to conceive. Of course, you also, without this, you can't like wake up and you know, take care of a baby in the middle of the night or take out the trash when you'd rather be watching the football game. So these virtues are, it's not just for the bedroom, it's for all the other stuff as well. And then temperance helps you balance it all out. You know, you're balancing out the different goods, the, the different desires, and figuring out how to find the happy mean. So Paul VI touches on this when he writes, the right and lawful ordering of birth demands that spouses acquire complete mastery over themselves and their emotions. For if with the aid of reason and of free will they are to control their natural drives, there can be no doubt at all of the need for self-denial. Um, the last speaker touched on this a little bit, and I'm going to just side note it here. I think one of the biggest mistakes we make when talking about natural family planning is that we leave virtue out of the equation and we give in to the temptation, which is totally understandable because we're always talking to hostile audiences, to oversell NFP. You know, to act like it's this magical pixie dust that you sprinkle on your marriage and everything will be easy. Like you can conceive or avoid pregnancy or you'll be able to pray better together or communicate better or stay together. I am a huge fan of NFP. I think it's one of the most awesome examples of science discovering how God has designed our bodies. I am grateful to what NFP has taught, for what NFP has taught me about my body. And I know it gave Chris and I our best possible chance of conceiving. Um, I'm also grateful for how it's helped my friends conceive or space their babies, you know, or, and do what they felt they needed to do for their family. But all that being said, you know, NFP is not magic. It's not marital counseling. If a marriage is troubled, NFP is not going to automatically make it better. Um, if one or both of the spouses are selfish or imprudent or immature, NFP is actually going to become the occasion for more marital strife. Um, NFP is hard. 
And it's hard because it requires virtue. It's also hard because NFP is like a light that shines on the deepest parts of our souls and shows us who we are, you know, where we're really weak, where we're really struggling, where we really need to grow. And those things are hard to see. Uh, for me, NFP definitely did that. Anyone who thinks NFP is only hard for those who are trying to avoid pregnancy has never had tried to conceive for a long period of time. Like NFP can really become the occasion for marital strife when you are trying to conceive. Um, for me, NFP showed me just how much I try to control things. Um, it showed me how little I trust, you know, how I lack the ability to surrender, and how angry I get when things don't go according to my perfectly laid plans. Um, my anger, my inability to trust, like that's not NFP's fault, you know. NFP wasn't the problem. I was the problem. But NFP was showing me that. It was showing me just how far I still had to grow in holiness. And that's a hard thing to see for people. But, you know, if we take what NFP shows us, NFP can be one of our best tools for growing in virtue and giving God that yes. There's another virtue um, that Humanae Vitae calls us to say yes to, and it's a supernatural virtue, um, the virtue of hope. Paul VI talks about the hope of life that places its trust in not the form of this world that is passing away, but a journey at the other end. Um, hope in this context doesn't mean wishful thinking or wanting something to happen. You know, it's not treating God like he's a fairy godmother or a genie in a bottle who's going to make all of our wishes come true. Hope is, as the Catechism explains, um, the theological virtue by which we desire the kingdom of heaven and eternal life as our happiness. So hope helps us keep our priorities straight. Right? It helps us choose Jesus day after day after day. It helps us say yes to him and no to all of the things that are going to pull us off the path he set us on. I was trying to do that. I was trying to say yes. Like That's why we weren't doing IVF, because God mattered more to me than a baby. But in my heart, I was struggling to say yes. I was struggling to really believe that God mattered more than a baby. Um, I was struggling to believe that life without a child could be a good life. I was struggling, you know, in my head I knew like there's nothing better than eternity with the author of life and love. But emotionally, I was willing to settle for 40 years with a child. A lot of us are willing to settle. You know, we are willing to settle for more money or more time or more peace or more fame or more love or, you know, a guy who'll love us tonight if you're single, but not necessarily for the rest of your life. Um, and sometimes that settling can make sense when you're looking at a husband who's threatening to leave his wife if she doesn't start using contraception or a woman who knows that another pregnancy is, could very well cost her her life or a marriage that has been pushed to the brink by prolonged periods of abstinence. Those are the hard cases. It is hard not to look at those and say, well, surely God doesn't care that much. Like, we can make an exception here, right? You know, like, surely God cares more about that marriage or that life or that couple that desperately longs for a baby than he cares about contraception or IVF. But hope tells us no. Hope reminds us that nothing is more important than God. Nothing is more urgent than following his will. And nothing is more ultimately rewarding than an eternity with him. 
In the little struggles and the big struggles, hope is what keeps us going, all right? It's what reminds us that behind all of the negative pregnancy tests and the empty nurseries or the sleepless nights and the dirty diapers or the single years that seem to stretch on endlessly, grace is still at work. You know, God is there caring for us in the midst of us, in the midst of everything and working through it all to bring us to him. If we continue to stay on the path that he wants us on though, if we hope against hope in God, even when it doesn't make sense, there is one thing you can guarantee, that at some point in our life, each one of us is gonna find ourselves carrying a cross that we don't wanna carry and that we didn't ask for. But that's the final yes Humanae Vitae asks us to, to give. It's a yes to the cross. Um, the cross, Paul VI says, begins with living as a sign of contradiction in the world. So like our Lord, our choices are not gonna make sense to our neighbors, to our friends, to our family, to our coworkers. Um, even when we think they make perfect sense, to the rest of the world, they're going to look, as my sister always says, weird. You know, why do you have to do that, Emily? It's so weird. Why do you have to be so weird, Emily? I hear that at least once a week from my sister. Um, to, not, to choose to use, not use contraception, to choose to not do IVF, to choose to wait to start a family and have sex until you are married, in our culture, those things are weird. And they are weird not because there's not all sorts of logical reasons for them. Like you can do all this great philosophy and sociological evidence to show how smart they are. They're weird because they're hard. <laughs> so not a lot of people are doing them. There are about 150 easier ways to avoid pregnancy than periodic abstinence. Uh, all of the fertility drugs and procedures you have to go through in IVF, not a walk in the park but it kind of is compared to never carrying a child or going through the complexities and uncertainties of adoption. Um, living your life in order, marriage and then sex and then kids, that's gonna save you a boatload of troubles. But it's hard to see that when your single years keep going on and on and on. Abiding by the teachings laid out in Humanae Vitae requires self-control and self-denial and emotional maturity. They require trust and patience and hope. They require a profound grounding in truth and knowledge and wisdom. And most of all, they require that for a week or a month or a decade or a lifetime, we are willing to hang on the cross with Christ. In those moments when we are hanging out on Calvary and we are feeling the nails in our hands and our feet, it, pardon my language, it sucks. Like, there is no other way to describe it. You know, it doesn't make sense. And the temptation is to just chuck it all and get off the cross and do what your doctor or your spouse or your friends are telling you to do. But, as I have tried to remind myself a thousand times over the past few years, the cross is what we signed up for, right? When I gave my life to Christ, I didn't sign up for easy. I signed up to be conformed to him to live like him and love like him and die like him. And I was willing to sign up for that because I believed that I wasn't just gonna find death, I was going to find life. The death that we all experience in self-denial, sexual or otherwise, it's real. But so is the life that comes from it. 
you know? And that's what we've staked our faith on, the idea that the life we will find in Christ is more real and more powerful and more transformative than any price we have to pay to attain it. Trusting God with our fertility and following the church's teachings on love and sexuality and marriage, that's where the rubber meets the road for a lot of us. But the good news is when we accept that cross, when we say yes to it, and we look up and around us and we don't close our eyes out of fear or hang our head in bitterness and resentment, like that's the moment we realize we're not alone. We realize Christ is right there with us. He is keeping company with us and we are keeping company with him in his moment of agony. And in that moment where Christ is, there is always grace. Like there's always life. And we sometimes don't get to see that right away. We sometimes don't get to see it for a lifetime. We don't know the fruit that our yes to the cross is bearing. Every once in a while, we get lucky, you know, and God gives us just a glimpse of what our willingness to be there on the cross has accomplished. And this is part of the talk. I don't know if I can get through without crying. Um, that's where my husband and I are today. So uh, literally days after I sent off the final revisions of Human Vitae, like one day or two day, I'm not sure which day I sent it off, we got a call um, about adopting a baby in California who was gonna be born in August. Now, Chris and I wanted to adopt, but we weren't there yet. <laughs> like, we hadn't started the process. We didn't have an agency. We didn't have a home study. We didn't have a profile. We didn't have the money. Uh, but we talked to our pastor about it, and his answer is great. He said, you never say no to a baby. So we figured that if God wanted to make it happen, he was gonna somehow clear out all the obstacles. And he did. Uh, how he cleared out those obstacles, plus like the six dozen other more serious, insane ones that I haven't mentioned, um, that's like a whole nother talk. But I will say that our seven month journey to our son was like the worst pregnancy you can ever imagine. So there's, you know, like the emotional equivalence of morning sickness the entire time with a 50% chance or more, you know, likelihood that we we're going to lose the baby. And what's always unique to adoption, the fact that our joy is going to come at someone else's expense, you know, someone else who has to give up their child. It was terrifying. Um, those of you who follow me on Facebook and read the Catholic table, you know a little fraction of the craziness that was going on. Um, but this is where all that writing of Humana Vitae, all of the lessons that have been reinforced for me, this is where they helped because I was having to say yes to God's plans and to trust and to virtue and to hope and to the cross through the, out the entire process. You know, we had to say yes to God's plan for our family that did not look like our original plan. We had to practice radical generosity as we walked with two of the most wounded people we had ever met. Um, we had to let family and friends and just thousands of strangers help us, you know, both with prayer and material support as the cost became more than we could bear. And we had to trust that God was working somehow in like the whole nightmare inducing mess for our salvation and the salvation of everyone who was involved in the process. And on July 25th of 2018, which was the 50th anniversary of Humanae Vitae, our little baby was born. Um, he never should have been born. He was almost aborted. He probably should have died in his womb or been born with serious problems due to the bad choices made by his birth mom. But when he came out of the womb, he was perfect. 
He was beautiful. And when he was placed in my arms a few minutes later, it was the purest experience of gift I have ever had in my life. And I told you I was going to cry. Um, in that moment, I was so grateful. It all made sense. Like all the infertility, all the prayers, all the crying. Because if we had conceived in the two years leading up to his birth, we never could have said yes to him. We never could have been there for them. We never could have taken on a situation that most couples couldn't have or wouldn't have. And we wouldn't be the parents to Tobias James Connolly Chapman. And that is the saddest thing I can think of. So from this perspective now, I'm grateful for the infertility. Um, I'm grateful that God didn't answer my prayers the way I wanted him to answer them. Um, and I'm grateful not just because I get to hold the world's cutest baby in my arms every day. Um, he is a cutie. Uh, but I'm grateful because I really got to see how God uses the whole painful mess to bring joy to those who stick to his plan and who trust in him and who put him before every other desire and every other pleasure and every other goal. Um, this doesn't mean that the infertility still doesn't hurt. It hurts. I still want to feel a baby kicking inside my womb. But the pain, I don't mind it so much anymore because I know it's not useless. I have seen how God works in the midst of it, and it is beautiful. So whatever you guys are struggling with right now, you know, whenever the temptation comes along to just say, chuck it, God, I'm done with this, think of Toby. Like, think of his smiling, beautiful face which you can see almost daily on Instagram. Um, and think of his adoring parents, you know, who like Abraham and Sarah and Elizabeth and Zechariah and the Blessed Virgin's own parents, St. Anne and St. Joachim, were given a child when they thought all hope of a child was past. God calls each and every one of us to carry a cross, but he does not call us to carry it alone, and he does not call us to carry it forever. There is a plan at work for your life more beautiful and more perfect than you can imagine. And that is what Paul VI was trying to get us to see in Humanae Vitae. Now, the world has spent 50 years trying to get us to not see that, and it thinks it is winning, but it can't win, right? Jesus said so, and I believe him. So please pray for my little family. Pray for Toby, pray for his parents. We would love to give him a sibling one way or another. Like, I love being a mom. I love it, love it, love it. Everyone's like, it's so hard. And I'm like, infertility is hard. Being a mom is just a little sleeping, you know, tiring. So um, I love it. We would love to have another baby if we can. And we will be praying for you. We will be praying that however God is asking you to witness to the gospel of life in your lives, that you are able to do it joyfully and give him that unequivocal yes. Thank you.